You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Dan Baer's interview with the director for the documentary All That Breathes, Sean X. Sen. When we were the first time, I was going to go to the night and go to the night. I was going to go to अपनी पूरी लाइफ इसको डिवोर्ट कर दी है जिंदगी खुद एक तरह की रिश्तेदारी है हम सब हवा की बिरादरी हैं जो जो चीजें सांस लेती हैं उनमें कोई फर्क नहीं दिखना चाहिए Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are talking with Shaunak Sen, the director of the new documentary, All That Breathes. Hello, Shaunak. Congratulations on the film, which has just debuted at the New York Film Festival and at the not super beginning, but it's been a lengthy festival run for you. How are you feeling? Good. I mean, uh, I've been on the road for a while. Uh, because it premiered in Sundance in January, right? But it's great. I love talking about the film, and the reaction has been fantastic so far. Yeah, this this is a very different, very striking film in terms of its look and uh, the narrative that it wants to tell. And I think the first thing that I want to ask you is, where did the impetus to make this come from, and how did you get? connected with the brothers who are the subjects of this film who are running this sort of ad hoc animal hospital in in Delhi I think when you live in Delhi what happens is that you're consciously mindful and aware of the air as this kind of um, very heavy opaque entity you know and it has a kind of palpable tactile presence the air like you're mm. constantly surrounded by this kind of a great miasma it's this kind of uh, pervasive gray texture and it's a texture that first came to me and i wanted to make something of the abstraction of humans birds and air and i was really obsessed uh, with this figure of a bird falling off this gray sky and this grayness kind of laminates all our lives whoever lives in delhi it's like laminates all the aspects of our everyday living you know you're constantly talking about did you see that the pollution is this much today this is the number it's very much part of our everyday discourse 
So I wanted to make something on the air and about using the figure of a bird. And I started thinking about human-non-human relationships and about, um, uh, I started thinking about where birds go when they follow the sky. And that's when I first researched on the work of the brothers. And the minute I visited them for the first time three years ago, uh, you know, this tiny, derelict, damp basement where they live, where on one side there's these uh, heavy industrial kind of machines and uh, it's, you know, on the other side you have this, these magisterial-looking legal birds being treated. The sheer um, salient bipolarity of that space overtook me. So uh, it's very cinematically riveting. And once you've met the brothers and see how absurd and surreal their living conditions are, what with the, uh, you know, uh, they work in a tiny, cramped, claustrophobic space where the entirety of the bird fall of Delhi sort of descends. So, um, all in all, it felt cinematically riveting, and that's how the film began. I, you know, a film is like a, is like jumping off a cliff, and it's like a free fall, and you don't really know when you've really begun the film proper. And it's these kind of small, imperfect pushes, and which over time become three years long, and you end up with a feature-length film. So you were filming this for three years, or was that like the whole process from like conception? The whole process, through... but we were often the whole process, but we were often editing alongside the shoot. So I would say we shot fully for at least two and a half years and edited for about wow. nine months. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. That's a, a long time. It's interesting. There's no real... I don't recall any real like markers of time in the film. And there is definitely a sense of time passing, but it doesn't feel like it was two and a half years. That's really interesting. You um, know, we were shooting animals and it mm-hmm. takes forever to recce and find animals and uh, see them in the natural habitat, figure out how to shoot them. And we, were, we weren't shooting it like a conventional wildlife documentary or nature doc, right? So we had to find a cinematic language, and which means looking for animals a lot, shooting um, them in particular kinds of ways. So, and, you know, animals are deliciously disregardful of our designs. <laughs> so, um, it takes it takes time. Like, just getting a good shot of rats took us a long time. So it, it's, it takes a lot. But you have to be patient and only then life rewards you with um, accidents. Yeah, I was going to ask about that opening shot. It's a really interesting introduction to the the world of this particular film. And there's something about it that it almost feels staged, even though it quite obviously isn't. And what was your 
your process or your methodology? Because there are a few scenes like this in the film where you sort of follow the rats or these other animals around the city. How did you decide, you know, like which animal you were going to follow for how long? How did you get that sort of this sort of very methodical, almost dreamlike shots that you got? Well, I firstly take it as a compliment if uh, you feel like the shot with the rats on stage because, you know, it's like, uh, well, the idea of the film was to use the toys of fiction storytelling to tell non-fiction stories. So, you know, use a crane, a track, uh, that kind of style. And with rats, of course, you're, we found an uh, underground nat- uh, rat nest that had hundreds of rats. But instead of shooting it in a kind of haphazardly handheld way, we decided we have to put a crane on top and, you know, like find a kind of gliding movement which feels at the level of the the subterranean level of the rats itself. So, you know, it's like that kind of a thing was very, very important in terms of capturing cinematically. So we spent a lot of time. I mean, we spent hours and hours and nights and nights just shooting that one shot. So I must have like, 25 takes of that, just trying out different things. And then finally, a take arrived where we had a lot of things that was working. So that's how. But it's um, with animals, the thing is that you over time to figure out intuitively a kind of rhythm that is concomitant with their movement at that pace. And once you do it, it feels like things are in sync. Yeah. And did you try to, because there are some similar, these like, pan shots of the brothers inside their apartment and inside the um, the little hospital space. Was that a similar sort of process that you were just going to, I'm just going to set up here and just observe and move at the pace that the humans are moving at the same as you did with the rats? You know, the film had, a kind, had to uh, mirror the kind of meditative, contemplative quality that the brothers themselves have because essentially if you you know the brothers don't just work with kites and they have this kind of take about human non-human entanglement and about our kinship or neighborliness with our non-human counterparts and the film was as interested in thinking of the city as a kind of ecological space where human and non-human lives are constantly jostling cheek by jowl um so therefore, you have in the film this whole panoply of you know animal shots. So rats, snails, lizards, horses, pigs, mm. so on, which are shot in these long, languid pans or tilt downs and uh, in uncut, long two to three minute shots. And that the idea was that there was to show, sort of show the simultaneity of life in a city and to show life writ large on the canvas of the urban. So um, we were constantly very mindful of trying to make people zoom out and look at the world briefly through the perspective of the brothers. Therefore, the brothers also had to be shot in a certain way, which is why we developed this kind of a flowy, slow, languid, meditative style, where we put the camera on two tripods and put a slider in the middle and kept moving it, irrespective of the brothers' movements. And soon a kind of dance develops between the camera, between the character's natural movement and the camera. And that kind of a slow cadence is what we deployed to shoot the brothers and all human activity also. It, it all had to be, it had to be, it could not have been an anxious, restless film. 
This had to have a kind of sense of stay, and it had to have a sense of rooted, anchored, meditative quality to it. It definitely does, and I found my own thoughts while watching this sort of drifting to my own life in New York City and how I interact with the wildlife around here (laughs) in 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 interesting ways i was not expecting to to be thinking about that while watching this film how did you deal with the um the space constraints when trying to film in these very in these rather cramped spaces that that they're working in i i love the claustrophobic tiny stifling basement because what Mm -hmm. happens is that you see at the end of the day the film is structured in this kind of an editing principle where we keep vacillating between the extremely cramped claustrophobic compression and decompression mm-hmm. of the city. So compression and decompression are the two kind of qualities. By compression, I mean the tiny basement where the birdfall of the city comes. And decompression is the skies and the open expanses of the city. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's like, you know, it's almost like inhalation and exhalation. It's like breathing. So uh, when you have when you have a film about the air and the sky and you're often looking skywards, to be shooting in a tiny cramped space is great because it allows you to play with contrast and it allows intimacy and it allows a kind of portraiture style of shooting which a lot of films otherwise don't. And you know boundary conditions are very good if you impose boundaries on you on yourself then you force yourself to be more creative. So. Um, to have this kind of a principle of extreme compression and tightness cut to extreme decompression of the sky was great because it imposed a kind of creative and aesthetic discipline and a, a aesthetic container to the film. It's mm, been great. One of the things that I think really sort of helped with that, you were talking about the, the inhalation and exhalation of the film to me was this score, which has a very sort of ethereal light quality. I think every time the music started up, I kind of got a little smile on my face. (laughs) Um, And it's this really interesting contrast with you were talking about in Delhi, and you see it in the film, how it's very gray and industrial and sort of like perpetually overcast. Was that the sort of feeling you were going score with the music what notes did you give the composer for what you wanted the film to sound like for one i wanted a surprising choice of music mm-hmm. so i knew that the initial bit where we talk about the brothers sense of aura and magic about the black kite it the black kite had to come across as a kind of wondrous magical otherworldly being and we had to communicate that through it had to sound like a fairy tale but then it had to sound like a fairy tale gone bad. So it started with strings, which then sort of move into distortions and electronic distortions. And in the lot in the conversation with Roger Bula, the music composer of the film, uh, we would constantly talk about how to invoke a sense of wonder and then stretch it out. And he played a lot with diegetic sounds of the kite's talents and the shuffling of the feathers and so on, and created a kind of soundscape that kept leading into the... And the main thing is because the shots of are long, we had this kind of stretched out sense, like, you know, these undulating kind of 
electronic distortion sound effects. Yeah, which yeah. Were very interesting, and it was surprising. Surprising choice of music, I think, that he put in, and I was very uh, into it. But the music works in very close kind of. Um, it's in lockstep with the sound design of the film. Yeah, very, very much so. And you, you do sort of capture the sounds of nature and the sounds of the birds and then the sounds of these very industrial surroundings that they're in. <laughs> I still haven't quite shaken this when I saw the film a few days ago when he's bringing in all those boxes in which the birds they've that they found and just the sound that they make when they're put down and it keeps heat they just keep coming and coming it's a striking striking image and the sound makes it even even more impactful was that something that you tried to like you noted to like sort of amplify in post or was that something that you just like noticed when you heard it and like that is that was something that you it was just there. I think all of it. The uh, the thing about occupying a space with animals is that it almost feels haunted because sometimes you can't see the bird or see the mm-hmm. animal, but you hear them scurrying past or shifting or scratching or you know it's like it feels almost a bit spectral. It feels like the modern human also feels a bit uncanny, and we had to capture that texture of talents on the on the cardboard cartons and boxes and feathers and so on. So we were very, very, um, we worked very hard on the sound. This person, Niladri in Bombay was really excellent with both recording and designing the sound. Uh, we worked very hard on both creating an uh, expansive foley of the film in Japan with this person called Yuki and a kind of sound mix with Jacques Peterson in Denmark where we worked very hard on creating a sense of presence. And with sound, what happens is Either, you know, for instance, the sound of skin or the sound of the rustling of clothes, like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, this sound creates a kind of uh, intimacy. So in the tiny basement, it was very good to have this kind of sound of chairs and clothes rustling and skin and all of that. And in the, with the animals, you know, um, sound is almost as important as the image because it's sound that kind of embodies the animal in a felt, fleshy carnal, uh, corporeal way, you know, like in a fleshy sort of, you have to feel the texture of the timber of the growl, of the bird call, of like all of that. So in that sense, sound is very very important in figuring the animal visually. So we work very hard on that design. Yeah, again, it's sort of very striking, um, the sound of the movie. Another striking thing about the film is that there's always this in the background, there is the, this sense of civil unrest that is happening around the brothers and around the hospital. You you never fully go into it, but it's always there as a, a presence in the film. Can you talk more about what it is that is happening in Delhi and how it affected the story that you were telling? Well, the thing is that we uh, we were certain that when we started, uh, we were making a kind of uh, film that had ecology in its front and center mm-hmm. and not a conventionally frontally political film. And the brothers are also sort of concerned with uh, the politics of 
humans and birds. I think which is political, but not in the conventional sense of the word. Yeah. Right? Uh, however, the city of Delhi in the last two years was going through a very turbulent phase, and there was a fair degree of sectarian violence, protests, and so on. So uh, I couldn't fully eschew it, nor could I randomly insert it into the film because the brothers themselves weren't constantly preoccupied with it. But the city you sense in the background, right? It's the epistemic wallpaper of their lives. Mm. Where, um, you know, it's like the character goes to the balcony and you hear the murmurations of the crowd protest nearby. Mm. Or a character seeing the video of terrible violence happening close by and you only hear the audio. You know, when Salik takes out the uh, squirrel from his pocket. So, uh, I the political, the social unrest kind of like is present only obliquely and tangentially. And uh, I actually prefer it that this way. Instead of a kind of pedantic lecture, which lots of films do, which is either preaching to the choir or, uh, you know, it's like it puts off other people. You have to emotionally move people. Like films have to sneak in their ideas and whisper it in your ears without you always fully knowing it. So, you know, films, films can be like Trojan horses, right? So you have to be able to have, you have to be able to sense the political in the background, which you can. And you start appreciating what the brothers do even more because they're doing what they're doing despite things being on the boil outside. And they still soldier on in the bid to save the black kites. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Yeah, it's really interesting. It sort of becomes, in a way, almost a portrait of not of just these two people and their family and their associates, but of really of the city of Delhi that just happens to center on these things as opposed to any of the other things that are going on in the city. And in that line, one of the things that I left the film thinking, because I come from a nonprofit background myself. I kept thinking, well, okay, like what what can I do? How can I help? There's a whole plot line in the film about them getting um, you know, one of these government sort of grants uh to do their work. And I think this is something that a lot of audience members will feel when they leave the film. So what what can we do? What can audiences, after they see the film, what can, if they are so moved, what can they do? It's very easy. It's very easy to actually support them. Remember, what they do is truly a miracle. Each bird that flies out after getting healed from them is, it's all a small miracle, you know, and mm-hmm. they need all the support that we can all give them. 
and um, it's very easy to if you just google their names or google wildlife rescue delhi um their names or anything it'll come up and then you'll find all the qr codes and all the details required to send money to them so uh, and remember any kind of even if you're giving a small amount all of it accumulates to being helpful for them so uh, i hope people listening to uh, check them out and support them absolutely wildlife rescue delhi coming close to the the end of what i wanted to ask you you said you shot for two and a half years in total was there anything that was particularly interesting or just a fun thing that happened to you that you ended up not including in the final film we had over when you shoot for that long we, you have a mountain of footage mm-hmm. and we had over 400 hours of footage so i mean there's a whole uh, we can we could make six other films from the material right? that's how much we shot but uh, the joy of a film is that you just keep sculpting and chiseling and cancelling things out and coming out to uh, forming a whole it's like sculpture right it's like it becomes a harmonious whole so of course the material that we left out is a lot there's too much to even mention yeah there's uh, various instances of their lives or various birds or other animals you shot bats and snakes and all of that which has found its way to the film but that's all part of the process you know like you kill your darlings and you trash a lot of lot of things that otherwise could have been good so i mean nothing in particular stands out but i feel like uh, this film would have had far more beautiful and breathtaking animals in the city shots that are not in the film any mm was there were there any particular species of animals that you shot that you felt a real connection to more than any of the others no not in no. particular <laughs> no okay so again coming up to the end thank you so much for speaking with us and thank you for your work on the film before we go what is the one thing you know this is a movie that is about a lot and we've talked about a lot of the things that this is about but what is the one thing that you hope audiences come away from this movie with i think uh, there's a kind of empathy and compassion towards non-human life which is rare because it's not just a naturally environmental film that spells gloom and doom and or is you know like uh, sentimentally pleading hearty it's not a film about nice people doing sweet things right it's a film that sort of has a kind of uh, i hope people is if i had to really put it in small simple terms i hope people walk out of the theaters and look up and notice not your own life and birds and of course at one level if people can support the brothers it's spectacular but just beyond that hopefully you know ideas are like things that enter the bloodstream of our minds and hopefully i think empathy and a kind of renewed attention at the entanglement of human and non-human lives oh there we go shanak thank you so much for speaking with us today and again congratulations on the film and i hope that you and this film have a very long and fruitful path ahead of you Thank you. Thank you. 
Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Dan Baer's interview with the director for All That Breathes, Sean Aksen, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. All That Breathes is now playing in New York City and has been nominated for two Critics' Choice Documentary Awards, including Best Cinematography and Best Science Nature Documentary. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Watch them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.